Let's continue to worship the Lord as we listen to his word together. Um, And to do so, we are uh, continuing in our Apostles' Creed sermon series. We've come to the portion of the creed wherein we confess our faith in the church. Um, And to do so, to explore this topic, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, want to follow along, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Um, Ephesians is kind of buried in the middle of the New Testament. So um, it goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, General Electric Power Company, (laughs) GEPC, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So hopefully that'll help you sort of navigate the New Testament a little bit, General Electric Power Company. Um, This is the kind of thing that I went to seminary for and paid thousands of dollars for a master's degree so I could teach you that little acronym. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be. So the Apostles' Creed, um, it's this short, concentrated statement that communicates the essence of Christianity. Um, It is an extra-biblical creed. Um, It is not a statement that's found in the Bible itself but it's been a statement that's used for centuries to sort of encapsulate and crystallize the heart of Christianity. Um, And what we're trying to do through this sermon series is show that this extra-biblical creed actually reflects biblical truth. So we're working through it section by section and sort of tying a different portion of Scripture to it. And as we focus this morning on our confession of faith in the church, again, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You know, this is interesting, right? I mean, we started off with, I believe in God, and then we talked about, I believe in Jesus, and now we're talking about, I believe in the church, right? And these things aren't quite the same, right? People struggle with the existence of God. People question whether Jesus truly rose from the grave, but nobody really questions or struggles with belief in the church, at least in the same way, right? Because How can you deny it? Here we are, the church. We're experiencing it. We're seeing it right now. We're hearing it right now. So how can you not believe in the church? At the same time, there's many of us who still do struggle with believing in the church because of hypocrisy that we've witnessed, because of abuse that many have experienced, especially more recently, sexual abuse that's come to light. A lot of us have lost our faith in the church. And so it is important and it is imperative that we do continue to express our faith in the church because the church itself sometimes helps us lose faith in it. I want to look real fast for us at Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. This is, I think, the most important few verses on the nature of the church in the New Testament. And it's also the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. And it comes right off of the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, Jesus is dialoguing with his apostles. And he says to them, who do the people say that I am? And then after they give an answer, he says, who do you say that I am? So Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, here's how this conversation goes. Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, one of his disciples, replied to Jesus, you, Jesus, are the Christ, 
You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. And I tell you, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here is Jesus right here establishing the fact that he's not only calling individuals to follow him, he is himself creating an organization, an institution, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Despite how many times we may try, despite how many times we may fail, Jesus has continued a good, has started a good work in us, and he will finish it. The gates of hell will not prevail against his people, the church. And so it is important that we side with Jesus on this matter, that despite our many failures, he will complete the good work that he's begun in his people. So I'm going to read for us, or let's read together, sorry, the Apostles' Creed, confess our faith together, and then I'll read for us Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says in Psalm chapter 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended, Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And Jesus gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or teaching, so that we may no longer be carried about by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Perhaps more than ever, we as a society are aware of our need to be physically fit and to keep our bodies healthy. News outlets share reports about the dangers of certain foods and the benefits of other foods. There are documentaries like Super Size Me or What the Health. These movies take a deep dive into the food industry, exposing some oftentimes chilling realities. And then there's the $4.2 trillion worldwide wellness industry that sends at us a barrage of ads about gyms and dieting plans and fitness equipment and oils and pills and powders and crystals that are the solution to all of the problems with our bodies and our physical health. I even remember in high school, I had to take an entire course simply called health or health class. And much like everything else that I was supposed to learn in high school, I'm not sure I remember a lot of it, but I'm sure I was supposed to learn about our need to be physically fit and to keep my body healthily. So I'm certain that now more than ever, we as a society are aware of our need for bodily health. I was reading an article on theguardian.com this week about New Year's resolutions. This marketing firm in Britain found out that 33% of the British population gave some thought or made some effort at New Year's resolutions. And they found out that the top resolutions people would make are first, lose weight, second, get fitter, third, eat more healthily, fourth, take care of my appearance, and then a little further down the list was drink less alcohol and quit smoking. So more than half of these New Year's resolutions relate to the truth about we need to improve our bodily health. And the fact that people are making these resolutions communicates to us that if change is going to happen, they've got to take action. The same old, same old is going to get us the same old, same old. Inaction is not an option for achieving positive change. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the Apostle Paul shares that what is true about our physical bodies is also true about the body of Christ. Christ Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. And there is need for us as Christ's body to grow, to gain and maintain health, to be built up. Listen again to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Over and over again, the apostle makes mention of this. He writes, God, Jesus, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, he gave these different leaders to the church in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up 
of the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Rather speaking in the truth, in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Over and over again, the apostle makes mention of this truth that the body of Christ flourishes when it is built up, when it grows. I spoke to a brother this week about his experience in a former church that he was a part of for several years, a church that he was in leadership with for several years. And I asked him about his time there, and he said to me, that church is dead. They aren't growing and they don't want to grow. They just want to exist until they don't. And friends, there are churches like that all over this country. Every research report has the number of churches closing in the U.S. each year in the thousands. Normally, they report somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 churches close every year in the U.S., And Woodside Royal Oak, we better take heed lest we fall. None of those churches plan to die. None of those churches plan to close their doors and sell their buildings. But it happened because they became unhealthy, unfit, and then they just wasted away. So in the same way that our physical bodies need health, so too Christ's body, the church, needs health. As Paul puts it, we need to grow up. We need to mature. And in the rest of this passage, he's going to tell us how. How can we build up the body of Christ? How can we keep from becoming a statistic in one of these church death surveys? What we have here in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostolic fitness instruction from our life coach and spiritual fitness guru, the Apostle Paul. And the first thing he's going to tell us is to humbly maintain the unity of the faith. Humbly maintain unity in the body. So let's look back again, verses 2 through 6. Paul begins, With all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul says, when the Spirit of God is at work amongst the people, then He is unifying those people. That's what he means here by the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the unity created by God's Spirit as He works amongst believers. But here's the thing. Over time, that unity becomes threatened. And so he says to us, I urge you eagerly, actively maintain that spirit-created unity. And here's how you maintain that unity. With humility, with gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. So here's what this means. And this is not going to come as a shock to any of you who have been around the church for any more than five minutes. There are going to be members of the body of Christ that are not easy to get along with. Amen? There are going to be members of Christ's body that can't 
be enjoyed. They can only be endured. It could be any number of things that makes them difficult to tolerate, let alone love. And there are a couple of strategies that you can employ towards such people who are difficult to tolerate, let alone love. First, you can withdraw. You can avoid them. You can disconnect. You can do that by always being on the other side of the room as them, avoiding eye contact, or even more drastically, you could just totally withdraw from the church and leave. The other strategy is that you can attack verbally, God forbid, physically. You can attack the one who agitates you. And instead of withdrawing away from the church, you attack them and drive them away from you. But in each strategy, the result is the same. Separation, broken relationship, disunity in the body of Christ. And so instead, the apostle here gives us a third strategy for dealing with difficult people. Paul says, approach them with humility. And this Greek word for humility is closely related to the idea of lowliness. And here's how one dictionary defines this term, quote, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. In other words, a humble person approaches conflict with a difficult person, acknowledging that they themselves can be equally difficult. And the apostle here advocates also for gentleness, because he knows that it can be tempting to rage at the person who agitates us. He knows that it can be tempting to be overly severe and harsh. And notice that he's, he's not saying to never confront people. He's not saying to never call people out. He's saying when you do, do so with gentleness. And finally, he calls us to patience. Oh, this is the worst one. Because you're like, I've done everything I can to approach this person with a humble spirit. I've done everything I can to act and speak gently towards them, but they're still driving me crazy. They won't change. Humility and gentleness, it's not working. But you see here, the apostle also calls us to patience. And the King James Version translates this word for patience as long-suffering. And I love the vividness of that old English word. To show patience to someone is to suffer because of that someone for a long time. Because here's the truth, friends. Change rarely happens overnight. Change rarely happens overnight, but it oftentimes happens over years, over long years. And if the body is going to be healthy, if the body is going to be unified, if the body is going to be unified, we have to be humbly, gently, patiently bearing with each other in love. And Paul follows this with this grand reason why we should maintain unity like this. Verses 4 through 6, maintain the unity of the Spirit because there is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is in all. In other words, when we fail to maintain unity as a church, then we betray the fact that there is one body of Christ, and Christ is not split. 
when we fail to maintain unity as a church, then we betray the fact that there is one true Spirit of God, that there is one true and lasting hope in Christ, that there is one Lord Jesus, that there is one true faith that leads to eternal life, that there is one true baptism that is in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. When we fail to maintain unity as a church, we betray the fact that there is one God who is Father over all and in all. When we fail to live in unity, we fail to tell the world who God really is and what salvation really looks like. So the stakes are high, church. And I urge you to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If not, we will grow unhealthy, we will get sick, and we will die. How can we promote bodily health? Humbly maintain unity. And secondly, he's going to say, actively minister to the body. Actively minister to the body. Look once more, starting just where we left off in verse 7. We are to strive for unity, but, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So even though we are to be equally unified as a people, we are also unequally and differently gifted. Nevertheless, we are all gifted in one way or another and to one degree or another. He says grace was given to each according to the measure of Christ's gift. So right after he makes this call for unity, he notes our differences, specifically how we are different in kind and degree of spiritual gifting. Paul then in verses 8 through 10 quotes Psalm 68, and this psalm was originally a victim, uh, sorry, a, a victory anthem for the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, victorious in battle, sharing the spoils of victory with all the people back home. But the apostle here applies this concept to what Christ has done when he descended from heaven to earth to live amongst us. He came down here, as it were, to defeat sin, Satan, death, and hell, and he did it. He absorbed the power of death, but he also overcame the power of death through his resurrection. Then he ascended victoriously, returning to heaven from where he originally came. And as victorious one, he likewise shares the spoils of victory with his people. He shares spiritual gifts with his people. And here's what the apostle says those gifts are, starting in verse 11. And Jesus gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So Paul says, along with gifting every believer by the Holy Spirit, Jesus also gifted the church more broadly. He gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. He gave the church these different kinds of leaders, and here's what these leaders are for. Here's how these leaders benefit the church. Verse 12, they equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So brothers and sisters, hear this. This is God through sacred scripture telling you what mine and the other pastor elders job description is to be. A crucial part of my ministry, a crucial part of any pastor elders ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So this is what I call the Home Depot philosophy of ministry. You guys remember that old Home Depot slogan? They said this, you can do it and we can help. 
That's exactly what the apostle is saying to the church right here. You can do it. You can do ministry, church. You can share the gospel. You can show love and compassion to the broken. You can display spirit-filled hospitality in your home. You can teach your children and grandchildren God's word. You can mentor a young person or a young couple and point them to Jesus. You can lead your employees in a way that shows the strength and truth of Christ. You can complete service initiatives that bless your community through faith in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You know the power of the gospel. You can do ministry, and we can help. And guys, this is when church gets fun. This is when it's not just, oh, I guess I'm here to just watch the minister do all the ministry. But no, getting involved yourself, serving as a minister, as a servant of the gospel yourself in whatever context, in whatever ministry, in whatever relationships God has called you to. So let's keep going in verse 12. Pastor teachers have been given to the body of Christ to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, that's when the church is built up. When pastors are training people for ministry, when the people are carrying out the ministry, now the unified body and its different parts are working together in a healthy way. So church attender, honestly ask yourself, are you, merely, are you here merely to be served or are you here to become a more effective servant of the gospel? Are you here merely to consume, to consume the music, consume the halfway decent message, consume the spiritual experience, consume the coffee, consume the conversation? Are you here merely as a consumer, just shopping for the best church experience, or are you here as a disciple of Jesus, wanting to learn, wanting to grow, wanting to contribute to the health of the body of Christ, wanting to contribute to the fulfillment of the mission of Christ? And so I want to give you some practical steps. If you are like, yes, I'm a consumer, I'm an attender. I want to give you some practical steps that you can at least think about and pray about for how you may move forward in connecting with this body of Christ. We have a Next Steps class coming up Sunday, May 21st. It happens during this service over Zoom. Corinth, our assimilation director, leads that class, but it's a chance to learn more about our church, our philosophy of ministry, our leadership, different ways that you can serve. Baptism, if you haven't taken the step of being baptized into Christ and into the body of Christ. I encourage you, QR code. If you want to get really old school, there's the perforated card in your bulletin. Fill that out. Throw it in the offering plate. Connect desk. We want to help you take your next step in being a part of the body of Christ. But whatever it looks like for you, whatever God's call on our lives may be, God's direction for health in the body of Christ is that its differing members humbly maintain unity in the body, actively serve in the body. Because if not, we will get unhealthy, we will get sick, and this church will die. Thirdly, finally, we create and maintain health by lovingly speaking truth to the body. Lovingly speaking truth to the body. Starting in verse 13, he continues along these same lines of thought. He says, pastors are to equip 
and the people are to serve until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So now here, the apostle equates at least part of the growth that we need and part of the unity that we share is in knowledge, specifically our shared knowledge and increasing knowledge of the Son of God. If we are to be mature, if we are to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then we must mature and grow in our, as Paul says, knowledge of the Son of God. We need this kind of intellectual unity and growth so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro, carried around by every wind of teaching and doctrine, carried around by human cunning, carried around by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Because one of the dangers of being a child is that children are easily deceived. Children are easily fooled. Children are naturally and understandably naive. You put a child around a deep swimming pool, totally unaware of the danger, and they'll just walk right in. They just don't know. So Paul says here there's an identical danger for those who are childish in the knowledge of God's Son. They can be carried this way and that. They can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or teaching. The cunning and crafty teachers of false religions, they are counting on you, not knowing your Bibles. They are counting on being able to pray on you. They are counting on you not being in a community of scripturally informed truth-tellers. And so that's what he says to do in verse 15. Rather, rather than being deceived by false teaching, we are to, speaking the truth in love, grow up in every way into him who is the head. So Paul says when we have people who will lovingly speak the truth into our lives, people who will tell you the truth about Christ and people who will tell you the truth about your sin, then the body will be growing and building itself up in love. So imagine going to the medical doctor and imagine that you're just going there for your annual checkup. You know, you're not anxious. It's just a routine visit getting your vitals checked out, doing some blood work, height, weight, all the normal stuff. And your doctor comes in for this routine checkup. He has incredible bedside manner. He's kind. He listens. He's compassionate. Takes his time with you. He doesn't rush in and rush out. And so this loving doctor hears you out. He looks over all your health stats. The nurses have gathered. He starts to examine you. But as he does so, he discovers that something is terribly, terribly wrong with your body. And you are going to get worse fast. But imagine then that he doesn't want to tell you the truth. He sees something is wrong. It's obvious to him that something is wrong. But in the name of love, in the name of acceptance, he doesn't want to tell you the truth about what's going on in your body. Now, I can imagine you would be livid, right? We want doctors to tell us the truth about ourselves so that we can be healthy. But the truth is, oftentimes, we avoid our brothers and sisters in Christ because they know the truth about ourselves, the truth about our sin. We avoid them because they might call us into question. 
if we're thinking and talking about God in unbiblical ways. And then here's the other side of this problem. It's also that true that sometimes, as the church, we play the part of that loving doctor. It's also true that we play the part of that compassionate doctor who can see the sin or can see the unbiblical way our fellow church member is thinking or talking about God, and we don't say anything. In the name of love and tolerance and being hypersensitive to offending someone, we remain silent. Church, if we are going to maintain bodily health, we must lovingly, graciously speak the truth into one another's lives. If we fail to be a loving, truth-telling community, we are going to remain children. We are not going to grow. We are going to get tossed to and fro without roots, without an anchor by every wind of doctrine. So today is the 107th day of 2023. Last Sunday was the 100th day of 2023. So we are 107 days away from January 1st. And one of the things this means, according to businessinsider.com, is that well over 90% of us have already failed at keeping our New Year's resolutions. I think it's like in the 80s by February 1st. I mean, you must be really bad at this. Those commitments to go to the gym, to eat right, to get fit, to diet and exercise, a whopping 90 plus percent of us have already unresolved our resolutions for better bodily health. And in the same way that it's not easy to keep our commitments for bodily health, it is also not easy to maintain health in the body of Christ. Thousands of us are dying in this country alone just this year. And so the apostle urges us, humbly maintain unity. Bear with one another in love. Long suffer with one another. And he urges us, actively minister in the body of Christ. Get off the sidelines. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You are called to contribute with whatever gifts God has given you. And finally, he urges us, lovingly speak the truth to one another. Don't shy away from your responsibility to have honest conversations about the truth of God and the reality of sin in one another's lives as fellow members of the body of Christ. Otherwise, friends, you can count on it. It's happening all around us. We will get spiritually lethargic. We will get spiritually sick and we will die. But may it never be. But may we at Woodside Royal Oak grow up into him who is our head, Christ Jesus. May this church from now until the end be a healthy expression of the body of Christ on earth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.